0: This sermon, Jesus Exalted in Ephesus, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, October 16th, 2022, at Sovereign Grace Church. If you would stand with me, and if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, good morning, good morning. Those guests this morning, I'm Tom, have the joy of being one of the pastors here. What a delight to preach God's word this morning. Acts chapter 19. I've asked you to stand, but I'm also asking you to buckle up. A couple reasons. One is we're gonna be standing for a little bit. We're gonna be reading verses eight through 41. But the content is gonna keep you riveted. God's word has an ability to arrest our attention convict the heart, and move us towards worship. It has the ability to save the lost that are present this morning. At the hearing of God's word, let's honor him. Let's hear his voice as he speaks to us in Acts 19. Acts 19, verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, but When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke The name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I invoke, excuse me, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, who, who was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastering all of them and overpowering them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was Mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to craftsmen. These he gathered together. And with the workmen in similar trades, he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods that made with hands are not God's. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours might come to disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion as they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Erasticus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not, would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him And were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and another and some another. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander from the Jews and had put forward. And Alexander motioning with his hand wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? See then that these things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers nor blasphemers of our goddess, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are pro councils let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it should be settled by the regular assembly, for we are really for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we bring to give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that we would see the magnificence of your kingdom and the glory of Jesus Christ in a fresh way this morning. Let us know and experience and see that you are high and exalted. Jesus, you have authority over all Nothing exists apart from your command that it would have. Help us to see your magnificence, Lord. I pray that we would be deeply moved all the more towards repentance. Reveal our hearts, reveal our lives. Help us, if possible, to brush up and come near your holiness to the point that our fear of you draws us to you all the more and convicts us Moves us to repentance. Father, I also pray for anyone present that has not believed in Christ, that you be merciful. Show your mercy that you've shown us. Show them that same mercy. Convict them as well. Bring them to repentance. And in the end, let us rejoice in you. No matter what evil we face. And it's in your name we pray. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Kit Hughes writes in his commentary a description of Ephesus. He writes this Ephesus' strategic position made her the treasure house of Asia and the mother of materialism and ambition. She was the site of the temple of Artemis or Diane. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, 127 marbled pillars rose 60 feet to support the gorgeous ceiling, many of them inlaid with gold and rare gems, the temple's huge canopy covering an area 425 feet in length and 200 feet in width. housed the multi-breasted image of Artemis, supposed to have fallen from the stars, This temple was the center of a thriving cult of fertility worship. Ephesus became the collecting place for superstition and dark arts, a cesspool of the occult. Aware of this, Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this Present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places out of Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians was the waterhole of every kind of magician, witch, clairvoyant, and criminal, con artists, murderers, perverts, all found the climate of Ephesus unusually agreeable. Listen to his summary statement. That city was the dark castle of Asia Minor. Now, I don't know what you were thinking when you read through the text this morning. I did not have that in mind. I was unaware when I have read this. In times that I've approached these passages, I'm unaware of how deep the evil is in Ephesus. You know, when I hear the city of Ephesus, I quickly am marveled at the letter Paul writes to the Ephesians that we get to go to here in a little bit, because it's certainly involved in this. This is a dark place. But this morning in our text, what we're going to find is where the kingdom of God is preached. Jesus is exalted, and evil will not finally. The gospel will always win. This morning as we talked as pastors and we were looking over the message and Derek made this comment. He said, repeat this. Let us hear this. The gospel always wins. In this context, it wins over no matter what evil we would come up against and no matter what evil we experience and what we'll find in the text, no matter what evil we personally have joined in and participated in. The kingdom of God is preached Jesus is exalted, and evil will not prevail. We'll consider these three points. The kingdom of God is preached in Ephesus. Jesus is exalted in Ephesus. And evil will rise in this town, but it will not finally prevail. Our first point, the kingdom of God is preached in Ephesus. Ephesus. We have here, if you would look with me, back at verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. Throughout the text, you'll hear the word of the Lord. You'll hear the message of Jesus, the Lord Jesus referred to. We'll hear at the uh, end or at that uh, end of that first part, Uh, that we're looking at, the word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail mightily. The kingdom of God is preached, and it's preached by Paul, and it's preached by Paul boldly in this city. You have to imagine with me just for a moment that your plane has maybe been redirected and you've landed in a town, and you hear the Lord say, I need you to speak of the kingdom of God to this city. And you realize that you've landed in probably the most evil location on the planet. Tell them about Jesus, what must go through your mind. Well, we know this is what Paul is commissioned to do. Paul at first is destroying, seeking to destroy the church, and the Lord saves him and calls him on to this, but Paul in one way, is radically like you and I. He has his own fears and his own weaknesses that he'll often refer to. But Paul, in this town, for three months in this one location, the synagogue, preaches boldly. He knows what this town needs. Tim sent me an email yesterday. It said, knowing God's view on evangelism will help us be motivated to tell of Christ. The Lord in his great kindness has sent the evangelists to the worst place seemingly in the area. This is a notorious, sinful, evil place. And the Lord goes there. Go back to the Gospels just for a minute. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he goes there. He goes to those perceived as the most evil, the most vile, the most untouchable, the most ugly. And Paul boldly goes to them. Also, we know that the kingdom of God is preached in time and space. Let's consider that also. So there is definitely a location, and that's why I changed it. Originally, I said that when the gospel or when the kingdom of God is preached, Jesus is exalted. I've changed it to where the kingdom of God is preached, Jesus is exalted because it helps us put us on the planet in a specific place. There is a time frame of three months. He's in the synagogue in Ephesus, and they will not listen to him. And so he turns away from the Jews, and he goes right across town to a hall of Tyrannus. In fact, the original translation, some of the older manuscripts would also include for the fifth hour to the 10th, meaning from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, if you're from the Southwest, and if you're anywhere near the border, you're going to get this part, and you're going to really identify with this. This is what's referred to as Ephesus. Ephesus, I don't even know how to say that. It's their siesta time. (coughs) Everyone going to work at sunup, maybe even before, working till 11 a.m., and from 11 a.m., I like this stretch of time. They get to sleep in the middle of the day, 11 to 4 p.m. That's like the most productive time for an American, seemingly, unless you eat too much at lunch. We're trying to cram it in before the end of the day. These people have been sleeping all afternoon. There is a reference that's been quoted by actually some of the commentators saying that there were more men asleep at Ephesus, in Ephesus, at 1 p.m. than there were anywhere else in the region than they certainly were in the synagogue where Paul is preaching or in this hall that he now moves to. His time frame shifts and his location shifts, and it seems like the worst place, if you're a church planner that you would go. You're going to go into a rented place, and you're going to go during the time where everyone is asleep. There's another phrase, that there are more men awake at 1 a.m. in Ephesus than there are anywhere else. We hear that passage come to mind about the evil that multiplies in darkness. It runs wild in darkness. Paul seemingly is preaching at the worst time of day. But something radically is described. Look at the verse 10. He did this for two years, and the result. All of Asia Minor hears the word of the Lord. I'm thinking worst time in God's providence, it turns out to be the providential time. The time that these men and women needed to hear the gospel is when they would rather have been asleep. It's preached in time and space as well. A location, this rented hall. It's actually a school of sort. The way it's described in that one word, the hall, everyone in their normal translation understanding of this word is it was a public rented facility. Paul is funding this and maybe even those that are part of the church and this growing teaching. He's joining this rented hall and he is reasoning daily, dialoguing, open Q&A, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., and then Paul himself would go right back to work. And Paul is not an IT professional like I was. I think there was one hot IT closet I walked in in my whole career. (laughs) Everything was air-conditioned. Everything was heated. Paul's work is in the sun. He's sweating all morning long. He's in one of the hottest areas of the region, which surrounds Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And then in the afternoon, going back to work, As the sun just bakes this man. I don't know what's going through his mind as he's teaching his SGU that afternoon. You know, I'm thinking near the end of the evening, Derek is probably looking for some rest. He's been preparing, he's been teaching, rest would be good. Paul now goes back to work for several hours, probably to about 9.45, 10 o'clock. Real time, real space. This is a tenacious move by Paul. He will not give up on the determination to preach Christ. Rejecting and being rejected in one place, he picks up and moves his efforts and goes on teaching and preaching Christ. These details are provided to make it clear. He refused to give up even when he was refused. He kept on going, looking for every opportunity, looking for every way to get back to what he was called to, get back to that place and to those people, making disciples and baptizing them in Jesus and discipling Man after man, woman after woman. Consider this for a minute. The real time and real place and the nature of the text clearly helps us see that it is right here, right where we are, and it is right now during these times that we are called to speak of Jesus, to teach of Jesus. This text takes us and places it, or let's take this text, take the scriptures as it were and lay it over Sovereign Grace Church and our activities just for a minute. Here, what we've already heard in the text laid over our church regarding this tenacious preaching, this bold preaching of the gospel. What you would see emerge and what we're caught up in is the same gospel mission. I remember being a kid, that, that red sheet of paper laid over that, word, that page, had a bunch of words on it, and all the red words came to life on the page. Here's what comes to life. Sovereign Grace Church here. The word is preached on Sundays in a mortgaged building at 1241 West Ina Road. Jesus is preached. Community group at freely provided spaces throughout the city unless you start charging. At various times, various weeks, week after week, year after year, we're seeking to grow and live in Jesus as the spirit and the word do their work in us. The reasoning, the dialogue, the Q&A, and the fellowship of SGU, Sovereign Grace University. Our theology course, once a week, four a month, 7 to 9 p.m., Jesus is taught. The bridge course begins in homes where Jesus is introduced every week for 10 weeks at established times and places here in Tucson. And when the Lord leads, our plans change. Meetings are relocated and rescheduled. The times and places change according to the will of God and his providence as he advances his kingdom in this city. And like Paul, we, by the grace of God, will continue preaching Jesus in this time and in this place, wherever and whenever the Lord wills. Decisions will be made about where and when, uh, where and when, but all for this purpose Our labors in such a way that we are preaching Jesus. You know, one of the things I love to delight in is to make it to various servants in this church that are in their ministries and to help them see what they do in their labors by arriving early Setting up chairs, running the sound, greeting people helps us preach the word of Christ. We'll pick up, we'll go to a rented facility, and we'll meet at the worst time of days at times. One of our churches in California, they meet at a terrible time. The Lord is advancing the gospel in California. Kingdom of God is also preached through rigorous effort of Paul, beginning his day early in the morning, labor as a tent maker, hard blue-collar worker, physical labor, a craftsman, working his trade, and then back to the building at 11 a.m., preaching and teaching and discussing and persuading for five hours each day, and then back to work until 10 p.m. This is extraordinary labor. What an example of a labor laborer of the gospel. Paul's labor. And sweat, and that's important in our text. We're going to find out in a minute. All for the kingdom of God. All for the sake of Christ. Paul keeps working and working and working and working. And by the way, Paul will even tell us this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. But listen to what he says in 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached. And the most important part, and you believed. He humbly and clearly acknowledges that he poured himself out rigorously in the labor of the gospel, and he credits it all to the grace of God alone for the purpose of exalting Christ. The kingdom of God is preached. But now, point two, Jesus is exalted in Ephesus. The gospel will win and we'll discover quickly in the text how the gospel wins in this text. Jesus is exalted in Ephesus. I've grabbed this phrase from verse 17, if you would look there with me. This became known to all the residents. That I'm not skipping. We're going to go back. I'm just telling you where I'm getting this phrase. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, all, uh, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus is exalted. Several things occur. You can now back up to Verse 11. Several things occur, lead up to Jesus being exalted. So I fast forwarded to what this point is titled, but here's how we get there. Jesus is exalted first in extraordinary miracles. By the way, I think it's right for us to ask, wait, aren't miracles extraordinary in the first place? I mean, consider it just for a minute. Particularly in Jesus' ministry, a lame man, his legs take on muscle and sinew, and his bones strengthen, and he gathers his mat and stands up and skips away, rejoicing in Jesus. Aren't miracles amazing enough? A blind man, eyes blind from birth, that Jesus mercifully spits in the dirt, stirs it, stirs it, rubs it on his eyes, and after some dialogue. The man can see. Aren't miracles already extraordinary? Well, Luke uses this description to say this is a miracle, miracle. Not comparing them as better than Jesus, it's saying that what Paul and what is happening through Paul is what Jesus said you will do these things and even greater. This is actually super surprising. This is actually part of the text I told you. It would keep you willing to stand to read through when we got to that one. These miracles are extraordinary. In fact, the emphasis of the type of description is it's like a miraculous miracle. It's a miracle miracle. Paul heals and casts out demons. Miracle. But Paul's sweat cloths and aprons They are taken to, taken uh, borrowed from Paul and taken whatever touched his skin. I love the commentators. F.F. Bruce, probably one of the best New Testament scholars. The key of these two pieces of Paul's cloth is that it touched his skin and likely had his sweat. It sounds weird, doesn't it? And they would take these things. Now, maybe if you're from my era of growing up in the church, you're like, no, I remember the guy that ran a... Children, I mean, ran a televangelist show and he had prayer claws that he prayed over and cried on. He sent them out to you. You take these claws. That's bizarre, and I believe it's evil for that to occur. This is extraordinary, isn't it? Extraordinary. And these claws cast out demons and heal people. Paul was already doing that. They take these things to the people, and these things, the demons are cast out, and they're healed. But remember from what we know in the text and what it says very clearly in verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. (laughs) Okay, now, all of a sudden, it's not extraordinary, is it? Remember, he's the one before time and before space speaks and things come into existence and time begins to tick. Extraordinary miracles. This is him doing this. God is doing these miracles and by the hands of Paul, Paul is a mediator of this extraordinary work, and Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons functioned as symbols of the man, and we can't get into all of this, but we have to because of how almost disruptive it is in the text. They're symbols that pointed and validated Paul's ministry. Maybe this is helpful, much like the rod of Moses did for Moses. Moses. When the Lord is looking for a way, why would these people listen to this man? Moses, throw down your rod, and the Lord does an extraordinary miracle using Moses' rod. It's almost inexplicable for us. But the pagans, those that are without God, and they do not get it, all of a sudden see, wait a minute, God is involved here. Extraordinary miracles Because he's an extraordinary God. I commend it to your study. We considered earlier how hard Paul physically exerted himself. These two items are likely sweat cloths that Paul uses in his tent making business. This guy worked hard. He's a construction worker, essentially. He's tanning hides outside in the sun. Now, look with me in verse 13. Then, if that wasn't already strange enough, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answers them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all overpowered them and they fled out of the house naked and wounded now look for you and I because, because of a lot of reasons we may too quickly go to the notorious nature of the story the sensational nature of the story what is it is the humor in the story You know, looking back on it, it's like, what were they thinking? You know, I imagine the scene of the demons demons standing there and this guy standing there holding these guys' clothes like, uh, where are they now? But that's actually not the intent of the text. The intent of the text is to help us see how evil this place is and how wrong the theology had gone even in Judaism To think that there could be a band of exorcists joining in syncretism with the pagan rituals and spells of the Ephesians, looking for a way to drive demons out of people. And a demon manifests in this, man, and speaks. This is real. If this happened in this room right now, we would all hit the deck or run. It would be an extraordinary manifestation of evil. That's why in verse 17, we see that terror fills the hearts of people that have witnessed this. In fact, not only did they, some witnessed it, they saw it and heard it. As the story is told, it doesn't have that same like, wow, that was a crazy story. It has the, oh my God. And so, enter the fear of God. And the fear of God has a widespread effect. There's real and evil power manifest. And they have no control over it. It's part of the reason of their fear. They have no say to this demon. This demon can overpower seven men speaks in a voice they've never heard and has power they've never witnessed. They witness this demonic manifestation and it has a rippling effect, seemingly making it to everyone in Ephesus, both Jew and Greek. We hear that repeated phrase. Jesus is exalted in such a way that it is clear that not only he has a power and authority over darkness, over every demon, over every Satan, but he providentially will hold back his power because he will not be manipulated to do the bidding of men. Men have no say in that kingdom. The fear of God moves them to extol Jesus. That should be shocking in a way. I think we should just be running for the hills, crying out for the rocks to fall upon us. And yet the effect of what has been preached and what has been witnessed, God's holiness has been elevated. And they see that evil has raised its head as well. Men cannot manipulate God. He is way outside our control and they have nowhere to go except to who is Christ and they exalt Him. The effect and the fear of God is in the gospel. It is good news, but there is a desperation that must come upon a man or woman when they hear their need for the Savior. All we get is demons. One day, if we do not believe in Christ, all we get is hell and torture without Christ. With Christ, we can be set free from it all. Let Christ be exalted. The gospel does win and wins over even this. Jesus is exalted through remarkable repentance now in the text. Verses 17 through 19 describes it like this. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesians, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord is extolled. The very next thing, directly tied, also many of those who now were believers, came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of those books, those materials, they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. The nature of their repentance is deep and it's costly. It's deep because the conviction runs to the heart level. It's deep and it's costly. And they come confessing their practices, divulging their, pra- pra- their practices and spells that they were using. There was a phrase used during that time and since then. In fact, I'll bet, and I'm not assigning it, if you dig out occultic material, it won't take you long to find a reference to Ephesians' writings. The occult's been around a long time. Ephesians' writings refer to those incantations and spell castings, and they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. This is not a self-righteous, like, look at us, we're repenting, we're coughing it all up. It's an extraordinary display of desperation and humility. They simply could not sweep this evil under the rug anymore. These types of sinful activities were already notorious and public in nature. It's their city. It's what they swam in, so to speak. How could they then somehow hide their repentance in Christ? They couldn't. These were things they had to turn away from. Derek Thomas would say that they went as far as to calculate the value of what they destroyed. Their repentance is deep, but it cost them. Dearly, I was shocked when I heard this. The sum is equal, this 50,000 pieces of silver is equal to, and I've heard other references which are amazing. It's like one year's wage. This is $50 million of material destroyed in a fire. Derek and I were joking just recently, I was going through my office and I'm weeding through a bunch of books, I'm trying to get them organized on my shelf, and I ended up with a stack of books. I won't go into all the details, and I'm not going to slander anybody, and thank God they're now gone from the dumpster, so you can't run out there and find out what was in there. But I had some books, and I had a particular author, and I thought, I'm not going to read these anymore, I'm not going to recommend these go to anybody, and Derek knew what passage written, he goes, let's burn them. I thought this is great so later in the day we did not do that although that seemed like a lot of fun later in the day I hauled them out Uh, I think I even remarked to someone that was cleaning the building I took a bunch of boxes out there there were books in one of the boxes I thought now if they see that all these books are in the box and they're headed out they're going to go how come you're throwing away these books this is radically different kind of book as if if it were possible for demonic activity to be on a page. It doesn't matter how much it cost. Christ now rules my heart. It's worthless to me. And I don't want to get it into the hands of anyone else. A young man came to our church years ago, and during the preaching of the gospel on Sunday morning, I could see as I preached that day, he was loaded for bear. And he waited for ministry afterwards. He was a newcomer, red faced, full of anger. And I thought, oh man, I've never had this before. This is not going to go well. He waited. He wanted to talk to me. He wanted to talk to Joe Calabello. Quickly in the conversation, he said, One of the ladies in this church has been inviting me to come. Her name is Lynn. I was going to kill my brother this week. My wife. He's now left me and he's sleeping. She's sleeping with my brother. And I was going to kill my brother. And Lynn said, Come to church. And in that moment, what turned out to be an anger, <laughs> venomous, and I find out later, demonic possessed man, he believed in Christ. It's a miracle. And the hate dripped from him. And the last I heard from him is him and his brothers back to being. Him and his brother back to being best friends. The Lord not only rescued him, saved his brother's life. In this man's confession, and it came months later, he showed up at the church with his practices and divulged to me, and he had a CD case of music. I cannot even describe what he handed me. He unzipped it and opened it on the CD jackets. I can't describe. It was absolutely horrible. Well, I bet it was the stuff sold on the streets in Ephesus. He had spent thousands of dollars. This guy, hourly wage guy, thousands of dollars on this. And he said, I, I can't keep this. I can't listen to this anymore. And I said, Randy, that's thousands of dollars worth of stuff. He said, I don't care. And he goes, I need you to do something with it. I don't want anybody else to get it. So the fire pit is so that no one else would actually get the material. What do we need to bring to the burn pile is the question we need to ask. If you and I could only for a minute brush up against the holiness of God, I bet a number of things would flood our hearts. What is it? Pleasurable sin, a relationship that you cannot end. Their guilt ran deep. Their repentance was deep. It cost them dearly. It will cost us dearly. Now, if you would open to Ephesians chapter 1, and let's do something. Remember these men and women, remember their city, their lives. Remember their repentance. And here Paul write to them in chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remember Demetrius? Remember what he says? We know the rock fell from earth. We've got the temple. Over there is the goddess. And Paul says... Blessed be the God of Father, Lord Jesus. They're like, that's right. He's in heaven. Christ is coming back. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, remember what they valued. Which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Remember where they were going for wisdom and insight books and incantations and spells, demonic powers. Now God is the one truly showing them riches of his grace, making known the mystery of his will, not secret things that they kept secret or were kept secret from them, adding to the ooh and the ah. No, this mystery is revealed in Christ, the gospel, the good news. Down in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's what they found important to know now. And then listen to verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ and raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Remember, these men and women would have witnessed the demon himself standing in power and authority over these other men. And even them calling on the name of Jesus in their bizarre, ritualistic way could not drive him out. Now later they know at the name of Jesus every demon must flee. For the believer and now they are believers. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, the Ephesians, they would have been moved deeply by the grace and mercy of God. Great Artemis of the Ephesians now gives way to, great is the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Ephesians. Standing for two hours, imagine that, Bronco Stadium, Broncos, Broncos, Bron- and nothing else for two hours. I think for a real Bronco fan, it would have got old real quick, seemingly, two hours in heaven one day, great this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of my soul, the King of heaven. For ever. What a great difference of time and space. and What a place. Spells and incantations and secret things will give way to wisdom and revelation that is only known in their new father of glory. Their idolatry and earthly riches, they'll all give away. They'll all give way to Jesus, the King of heaven. Worshiping the true king. No longer worshiping the demonic king. If you're here this morning, believe in Christ and you'll be saved. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter what spell you have invoked. It does not matter the sexual immorality you have dug into. It does not matter. Come running to Christ and believe in Christ and the king of heaven will immediately forgive you. You will experience a growing personal relationship with Christ but a corporate, public ability to repent and turn away from your sins. Your baptism will say out loud to everyone present your baptism, I belong to the King of Heaven. I don't belong to great Artemis anymore. I can let the relationship go. I can let the money go. I can let all those things go because now Christ has taken hold of me and He will not let me go. Believe in Christ if you're a believer and you're hiding sins, if you're burying them in a sense in the bottom of your tent and you're just hoping nobody knows about them, come to the holiness of God and you'll see there is a way that you can repent. There is a way and a way forward in Christ to overcome the sin, the temptation, the captivity, seeming captivity to the sin, which the scriptures will tell you you are no longer captive to that sin. You willingly just keep turning back to it. You are no longer slave to that sin, but you keep going back to the master of you, seemingly. Turn to the master in Christ and confess those sins. Bring those things to the burn pile. We heard the reference earlier to the dark castle. Well, now we know in the text, as I have five minutes to read the longest portion of the scripture, the dark castle will begin to crumble as person after person is rescued from this darkness and brought into the marvelous light of heaven. King Jesus, the Lamb of God. King Jesus, the Lamb of God. The King Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away your sin. Where the kingdom of God is preached, Jesus is exalted. The gospel will prevail even if what happens next occurs in the text. If you would go back, we were probably still in Ephesians, go back to verse 21. I won't read it all. This is no little disturbance. If you thought things were bad, now consider these. Paul is resolved in the spirit to stay in Asia for a while in verse 23. And I'm wondering if that point he's thinking after that, I'm thinking, I probably should have gone on to Asia. This is getting really, really bad. But there is another description of Paul in this. Paul wished in verse 30 that he wanted to go back in to the theater. All of this riot surges forward in evil, demonic frenzy. They grab two of his Christian brothers and drag him into the theater of 30,000 seats. And it is deafening the evil cry to Artemis. Paul can hear it outside the theater and he wants to go in. I'm thinking, man, I think I'll move out of this country. Paul wants to go in. This has gotten so bad. The evil is so turned on us. There is no way around this. Listen to Martin Luther's song as he writes about evil. (laughs) Mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of moral ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. That's referring to Satan. But Luther's doing it for a reason. Because a mighty fortress is our God. These people have gone into, in a sense, the dark castle, the celebration, the, the theater, That's the place. That's the place to do it. But the kingdom of light is now coming in Jesus and assaulting this kingdom of darkness and this ancient foe, Satan, who's real. He'll be disposed soon. The gospel is advancing against evil fortress and here in the text we see verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So what got them into the theater is the question. Well, what got them into the theater is their jobs, their money, their investments, their wealth. The term there is not like our daily wage. It's like all our money is tied into this. What Paul is preaching, it's destroying our economy. It will destroy our economy, and it will take away all of our money, and the evil insurgents begins to move forward, and they're moving forward to protect their pocketbooks. They're moving forward to protect their economy. Does this not sound familiar? And the other thing that's attached to it is evil resurgence is coming in the form of protecting their demon goddess, Artemis. This is probably a clever move on Demetrius to say, you know what, he's coming after all your money and oh yeah, our religion is under assault as well. What has the gospel been threatening in America? Has it not been the debauchery and sexual revolution? And so they march and so they legislate. They raise They raise the riot volume. Could they not? Could they? uh, Could not Hollywood or major broadcast be declaring the same thing as Demetrius? You know that from this business we have our wealth. Christians are the target of this crowd. So the evil is evil. It's bad. People are going to get hurt in this. In this case, it's the Christians, and the rage takes over them as they drag these men into the theater. What's going to happen? Paul's friends, his unbelieving friends who are rulers in the town. It's it's amazing. They they are calling Paul saying, hey man, we do not go in there. And in God's providential protection of Paul, he stays out as things get worse. The evil rises from this confused and demonic frenzied riot as well. But what's noticeable about the evil is what Jesus speaks of in the Gospels. A kingdom divided against itself will fall. Now, originally when I heard Jesus say that, I would have thought, oh, well, then of course the demons aren't against themselves. It's very clear in the text. This crowd is confused and they're against one another. These Jewish guys can't even cast out demons because they're using demonic power to cast out demons. And so they are going to fall. And it begins in this confusion. In fact, the statement in verse 32 is humorous, but it's hopeful. And most of them did not even know why they're there, but it should make you and I nervous. This is the nature of a mob. How did we end up in this riot? How did we get here? And usually the answer is, I have no idea. Do you remember the riots that occurred in Portland? What's interesting about the riots in Portland is I would have originally thought, no, wait a minute. They don't want government. They don't want the law. They don't want anyone to tell them what to do. And the first thing they do is set up government. They set up also. Now I'm privately thinking, oh no, that's they had an agenda. No, they did not know what they were doing. It's a riot. You know, the media can tell us what they think they were doing. What happened in that town, what will happen in this town if there's a riot, is the people involved will not have a clue why they're there. But it's crazy. I've built up to this like climactic, growing evil, and it comes to nothing. And it's almost as if it just keeps building and building and building and getting louder and louder, and louder, and then the short, stocky guy with glasses. I'm sorry, that's the way I picture the town clerk. I'm sorry, if you throw clerk in front of something, I picture myself in a file room when I'm a kid. And this guy stands up, meaning he's a ruler in the town, he commands the audience, squelches the problem, and it's all shut down. But do you know what's really happening? Where the kingdom of God is preached, Jesus is exalted, and evil will not prevail simply stated in verse 41 and when the town clerk had said these things he dismissed the assembly so now you and I can hear Matthew ten twenty-eight. do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of the Lord does not dissipate in the text. Evil disappears. It's as if Jesus stood up in the boat in Ephesus and calmed it with one word. I'm going to close with this. If I could have the band come up. And this is not the song they're going to sing, but it is a song. Luther goes on to write in A Fortress, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, the following words after what I read earlier. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Through Him who with us is sighted, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Thank you for staying with me through the lengthy text and a lengthy sermon. You would stand with me.